standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 201 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, flying solo at the top of this pod, but fear not, there are excellent interviews from that Hannah Dunleavy woman and that Jen Offord bird to come. As I record, yesterday was a bank holiday, and as well as listening to Blur's shouty anthem of the same name, as is traditional, I met up with your pal and mine, Liz Buckley, to watch The Velvet Queen. If you haven't heard of it, it's a film about a snow leopard scored by Warren Ellis and Nick Cave, making it, as Hannah pointed out, the most Buckley and Noonan outing ever. Now, if you go to see it expecting wall-to-wall leopard, you're going to be disappointed. But if you'd find solace in a calm slice of the beauty, majesty and intelligence of nature, alongside the most fucking French philosophical takes and backed by some gorgeous sounds, The Velvet Queen is very much for you. Why am I telling you about a nature documentary? Well, the news is all really bleak again, isn't it? Like each week boasts about how bad it's been and the next week says, hold my beer, on and on and on it goes. There is no Bush Telegraph this week, but perhaps the most bleak, if not particularly unexpected news, is that a leaked document from the Supreme Court in America suggests the country's top court is poised to overturn Roe v. Wade, the 1973 decision that legalised abortion nationwide. It's much more nuanced than I'm going to go into now, and obviously would take time to settle if that decision is overturned. But in short, it means millions of women across the US could soon lose their legal right to abortion. We've said it before, we'll say it again, we're never going to stop saying it on this podcast. Outlawing abortion doesn't stop abortions. It makes the lives of millions upon millions of women terrifying and dangerous. And it reduces women to wombs without agency. Probably won't surprise you to hear that we are not on board with that. The Supreme Court's justices are expected to issue a ruling in late June or early July and we will keep you posted. Right, back to those terrific interviews, I promise you. Coming up, Hannah chats to Kayla Meikle about her terrific performance in the Donmar Warehouse's new show, Mary's Seacole, which seamlessly, yeah, if you say so, Hannah, moves into an interview with one of its other stars, Olivia Williams. In Jenny Off the Box, Jen talks to Vera Vinken, a senior brand manager at Riot Games, about esports and the upcoming Game Changers tournament. And in Rated or Dated, I'm not sure whether to be impressed and Jen turns into a dad as we watch 2002's Bend It Like Beckham. Hello, Hannah here. I am joined by Kayla Meikle, star of Mary's Seacole. That's Mary's M-A-R-S, not apostrophe S for anyone wondering, which is now on stage at the Donmar Warehouse in Covent Garden. Thank you very much for joining me, Kayla. Hello, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I was trying to come up with one sentence pitch for this play and I really struggled so I thought I might hand that job over to you. How would you condense this play into a, a short explanation of it for Oh for my days. Um, <laughs> okay, I would have to say something like uh, this play is... Well, okay, I don't know if I can do that actually <laughs> but <laughs> what I might try and say is about the name of the play. <laughs> I think a few people think is a typo. It's not a typo. It's it's multiple Marys. It's about the Marys that are in everyday society. The Mary Seacoles that look after our children, look after our families, that clean our houses, that work for our NHS, that work for TFL. The sometimes invisible, underthanked, often black women of society that allow our world to continue and run. You are playing Mary Seacole, but you are also mm -hmm. playing a, a variety of Mary Seacole. So in some ways, she sort of becomes a cipher for a common experience. So mm -hmm. I wonder how you approach a role like that. Well, in my life, I've been very fortunate enough in my career to work with amazing actors, actresses, really. And incredible directors who have really encouraged me and nurtured me um, to give my craft the time and respect that it deserves. And I've been in really fruitful environments where I have been, you know, encouraged to go deep. And so like, that's how I approach roles anyway. Anyone that I'm playing, I try and make them as real as possible and really get into who they are. And then on top of that, I'm playing my the absolute heroine of my life. And so I had this amazing place to start from where I was 
given the gift of honouring this legend. And so I went to Jamaica to find out as much as I could about her or about what she wanted us to know. Because really, you know, she's the only person who has written the book about her life. So everything Mm -hmm. that we know about Mary Seacole is what she wants us to know. Everything on Wikipedia and everything in her book, The Wonderful Adventures of Mrs. Mary Seacole, it's like I was born... And then I jumped to 45. (laughs) I went to the Crimea. You know, there's actually still a lot we don't know about her. So I think that's really interesting as well. She's allowed me, Mary has allowed me the space to fill in some of the gaps that she, of her life, that make her more human. And I've loved doing that. Yeah. I was trying to think of an analogy and I think I came up with, you are the maypole or she is the maypole around which everybody else dances. And, you know, actually much with a maypole, they start to close in on her. And she kind of starts to get get tied up by them. Now, the Mm. characters who are played by... There are six of you on stage. And the characters that are played by the white women on stage, they draw a really fine line between being exaggerated characters without coming across as caricatures. Mm. How how important do you think that is to the sense of, of Mary's experience in this? I think that's the really beautiful thing about Jackie's writing, is that she's so clever and emotionally intelligent and understands people so deeply that you know in this play we bounce between total naturalism really naturalistic scenes of people that we see in hospitals or in on park benches in parks looking after their kids to then quite like you say like gross huge ugly caricatures which in my opinion don't feel extra or over the top you know we still understand those people they still feel very real I think as a writer she really gets inside that and that's such a gift to play as an actor and like you know the decline of Mary desperately trying like you say she's the maypole trying to hold on to this version of her story that she's telling and by the end we completely see her becoming unraveled by these women who take 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 taking from her it's funny when you were saying that, I was thinking about my playlist that I have for this. <laughs> I do a playlist for every job. And on this one, the oh, main great. banger that I'm playing is Shaka Khan. I'm every, I'm every woman. <laughs> she is every woman. <laughs> oh, I love that you do that. Is, is, that's for when you're preparing or for when you're coming into work. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. As soon as I hear that I've got a job and I know who I'm going to be playing, I try to start thinking about the playlist I'm going to make. Oh, that's brilliant. Now, I went to see... Jerusalem. I've got I've had a banging week at the theatre. <laughs> I really have. I saw this on Saturday and then I went mm-hmm. to see Jerusalem on Wednesday. My nephew, he's 15, he absolutely loves the theatre. And for mm. years and years I've been t- I've told him the best thing I ever saw was Jerusalem. And I can't wait to see it again. I'm yeah. going in May. Oh, are you going? Yeah. Oh yeah. my god, Kayla, it was it was it was as it was absolutely amazing. It was as good. Actually, I would say it was better because mm-hmm. I also got to watch him watch it because I took him with me. And for like three hours in his life, I was the best and the worst influence in his life. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it occurred to me that actually the two plays are structured really similarly, as in the first act is really funny. The second act is really chaotic and the third act is basically carnage. And now I saw you at a matinee. You walk out of a matinee and you think, Christ, they've got like two hours maybe. And then Mm. they have to rev up and do it again. Can you tell me a little bit about how you go about doing that? How you fill those hours and how you get sort of, because I know there are practical things you'll need to be doing like eating, mm. but mm. how you sort of pre- prepare yourself to rev up to to go through that again? I'm not going to lie to you. It's really hard. Like, you know, obviously we love theatre. We're so grateful to be doing these shows. But I'm like, sometimes I think this vein of work is not to be done twice in one day. <laughs> so like I was saying to you earlier I have to be really diligent about care with myself like I don't know I I have heard maybe there's this vibe of you know actors can be quite precious and you know it's not that hard and I I, listen I understand you know we're not saving lives but there is a lot that goes into what we do and you know so in this in particular with this telling this story I've, I've had to take care of myself emotionally and so you know, I know that once that show is done, that matinee is done, I might have to go and have a lie down for mm. half an hour. 
like I say, I might have to listen to my music or if I'm fortunate enough to, for the theatre to have brought in a physio so I can just have somebody lay their hands on my body and just, you know, help me move that energy through. And yeah, just really resting and putting good food, nourishing food into my body. Yeah. <laughs> and staying hydrated and trying to acknowledge and be grateful for that show that's just gone let it go and move through into the second show I mean I have to say uh, you are I probably haven't said this yet but it is an absolutely tremendous performance by you really you are I mean everyone is good at it but like I say you are there you are the middle of the stage you are the middle of everything during it and yeah exhausting though it looks it is absolutely worth it Uh, (laughs) from my point of view to sit and watch it Oh, we have a late show by Olivia. She's just she popped in. She's just popped into this meeting. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. I'm so sorry. That's quite all right. Oh, I'm giving up. Hi, Olivia. We have been having a lovely chat. You appeared like this, and I thought that is excuse enough. That is excuse enough. Kayla is used to my hopeless timekeeping. Sorry, Kayla. That's all right. No, we've been having a lovely chat. Olivia, welcome to the Standard Issue podcast. Hello. I was just talking earlier to Kayla about how the characters that you play step a really fine line between being exaggerated and being caricature. And good of you to say that. I think <laughs> I, I step way over the line. You are very funny. <laughs> but I mean, that we had a question at a Q&A last night, which was what was the most challenging thing and our fellow actor, Deja, put it brilliantly, which is to, she was talking about speaking in patois and and treading the line between being authentic and being comprehensible. My fine line is, you know, my essential job is to play a series of historical and contemporary white racists. And I have to tread a fine line between authenticity and looking Kayla in the eye and saying and doing things that I find um, sort of morally reprehensible and painful. Sometimes to get over my own difficulty with the material, I push it into into comedy and into extremes. But we have to hold on to the essential truth that this behaviour isn't funny and uh, is very painful to contemplate and confront. Yeah, good answer. Now, obviously, Kayla, you are your Mary Seacole, as discussed. You, Olivia, play Florence Nightingale uh, in. I mean, talk about exaggerated. Um, when you, <laughs> I mean, you wear a dress so big that when you walk past me, I felt like I was briefly wearing it with you. Uh, yeah, you actually can get in there and crawl underneath, <laughs> and no one would have known. <laughs> so, I, I want to know what you both make of of the relationship between the two of them because obviously Kayla and I have been discussing you know how Mary Seacole's story is very hidden and Florence Nightingale is held up as the sort of the paragon of of like womanly virtue at the time and I I wonder uh, sort of what you make of of their dynamic let let me start with you Kayla. We had the Mary Seacole trust in last night and oh wow um, that was very emotional and incredible to speak to them and I think he put it really well he was just like you know we need both these women and like they existed alongside each other they're both incredible women in history and just the way he put that you know so simply it's just fact I just thought that's so touching and that's so true you know they're both were on their own individual vibe and did their own thing and we need them both and I think that like we we were talking about in rehearsals how they never publicly dissed each other and, you know, spoke quite respectfully of each other in public because there still was that, I'm sure, like, admiration for each other and um, the respect there. And, 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 then, and then I think Jackie, you know, really brilliantly, like, puts political, racial, social texture layers onto it and then that, that brings up its own thing and our, our own understanding of the world today. I think the the great mistake is to call Mary Seacole, um, again, reductively and insultingly, the black Florence Nightingale. Um, They are not comparable. You know, they were performing entirely different roles. 
Florence Nightingale wasn't a nurse. She didn't do any nursing. She invented sort of hospital administration. She was she was a statistician. David Spiegelhalter, uh, who's the uh, a great statistician who explains statistics to the public, lords her as 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 his own. Uh, she invented the pie chart, and she was brilliant at ordering enough, you know, sheets and blankets and organizing uh, beds in such a way that they were ventilated and um, healthy and comfortable. And Mary Seacole laid hands on people and they called her mother and she cured them of cholera with uh, traditional medicines that had helped people with cholera in Jamaica for centuries. And we're only now beginning to see the value of mining traditional plants for medicines for people. The only proof we have that they had a relationship is that Mary Seacole did write to Florence Nightingale offering her help, and it was not particularly politely declined many times. And uh, I think Helen Rappaport, the biographer of uh, Mary Seacole and Florence Nightingale, thinks that Florence Nightingale may have ruined a, an opportunity that Mary Seacole might have had to have tea with Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria is quite keen to meet her, apparently, and I've, it is believed that Florence Nightingale said, you know, you don't want to meet that witch doctor type. Um, but um, that is me putting putting words where there are no words. Um, right. Also, Mary Seacole believed in curing uh, cholera with rum, which I think sounds like a good idea. And um, Florence Nightingale was teetotal and believed that everyone else should be. Interesting. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a different approach. And yeah. you know, there's room in my life for, you know, I've had a hideous illness um, that required treatment in a hospital and surgery and uh, but I also have acupuncture and massage and there's room for both in my life and there should be room for both in in the history books okay now I've just seen that Kayla's got um needs to be out of here by eleven forty, so I may seamlessly yeah, sorry about that. seamlessly no it's fine segue oh, Kayla because I can stay from, from, from one to the other so <laughs> Kayla um yes to finish with I just wanted to ask you what if you could possibly get your head around saying something like this is next for you because I want to see you do something else now. I don't know what's next for me. I, I, I mean, immediately after this, I'm probably going to need to take a little holiday. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Yeah. But I mean, honestly, like I just have to keep pinching myself every day, reminding myself to enjoy this because I'm going to be really sad when it's over. Yeah. And, you know, this job has meant so much to me for so many reasons. I feel so honoured to be telling this story of my heroine in this theatre. And um, I sort of can't think about what happens after this now. No, that's absolutely fair enough. And it's lovely to hear, actually. Um, thank you. I've had an absolute pleasure talking to you. You too. Thank you so much for this. Yes, Olivia, great job. The scene when we're talking about, you know, caring for children. Within it, there is something about just the sort of the loneliness of motherhood and the isolation of motherhood that I think is actually really important as well. Yeah, well, the wonderful thing about uh, Jackie's writing is that she doesn't judge either group um, when she gives you a character to play. And the woman who is really struggling um, with a new baby is played by Esther and Smith. And she, um, she's a young white woman who is not coping with being a young mother and is sitting in the park trying to talk to anybody. Yeah. <laughs> talk to her. People who clearly don't want to talk to her <laughs> at all. And she wades in with some clay boots saying all the wrong thing. But um, she's just desperate for company. And, you, you know, I have sat in the park weeping with tiredness and loneliness. And this extraordinary line where she goes, you're alone, but you're also never alone, um, which is one of the problems of being mm. a young mum. And it's taking into account, you know, plunging um, hormones and uh, and the way modern society cuts you off from your support system, which is mm. one of the subjects of the play. And the fact that when you ask someone to look after your children, you are very often taking them away from their children. Mm. And the young nanny who Deja Bowens brilliantly plays is looking after someone's gorgeous, blonde, ringleted child um, and leaving her child unmothered 
back mm-hmm. in Jamaica. Yeah. I realized I've done that. I had someone who worked for me who was from Poland and she had a five-year-old daughter in Poland who she didn't see for, for a year, I don't think. And, and I, it upset me at the time, but I didn't stop employing her because she wanted to be, had to have employment. An appalling situation for for everybody. And that is what Jackie is saying. She's saying, I'm not saying it's wrong or it's right or anybody is wrong or right, but it's just worth raising. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> while you pay someone to care for your elderly and your young, who's looking after their elderly and their young? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it really does ask the question sort of the, the outsourcing of care to somebody else, be it, you know, somebody cheaper, basically. Yeah. Someone whose hours you deem to be worth less than an yeah. hour of your life. Yeah. It's uh, something that sort of just goes un- unnoticed until those people aren't there. Mm. And and also the astounding patience and skills and kindness that that is not recognised financially. And more than one person of friends of mine who've come and said that their mother's last days were spent with a carer who they loved and showed affection for in a way they'd never shown to their own children or received from them more hugs and kisses and stroking than they'd ever had within their own family. Yeah, my sister worked in a care home over lockdown and... um... And, you know, look, has she has she been treated any better? Has she had a pay rise? No. And I was like, did it matter to you that people were clapping in the street? And she was like, no, not really. You know, I think it did more for the people who were clapping than the people who the clapping was for. Yeah, our yeah. clapping ended up being a lovely party every Thursday in the street. Yeah. Uh, distanced, of course. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no. And, and there is a part of the play which some people are struggling with, um, where someone speaks up, as in Duppy Mary, played by Luella Gideon, speaks up and says all these things that are bothering her. And the response of the three white characters to, is to almost sort of stroke Mary Seacole to death, going, sort of going, there, there, I'm so sorry, and trying to comfort her. She's like, don't stress, can you stop with the comforting? Yeah. <laughs> and it's the, you know, the white guilt um uh, the, where you try and put things right and end up making it worse. And again, Jackie is not uh, castigating people for that. She's just pointing it out. Yeah, Kayla and I were talking about, just, you know, just earlier, that sense of Mary Seacole was a maypole and yeah. they were slowly sort of dancing around her and, and covering that. her up. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I was pleased with that. <laughs> I much prefer the idea of us wrapping her up in pink and blue ribbons than actually yeah, <laughs> the kind yeah. of nightmare that is the truth and in the play but a maples are brilliant yeah we, we dance around Kayla's central staunch monumental performance oh she's, she's terrific yeah. she's absolutely terrific in it now Olivia I want to ask you one more thing before mm. you go and that is um you are in one of my absolute favorite favorite films uh, oh, which is Rushmore I absolutely love it. And a couple of years ago, we used to record in the Lord Stanley in Camden. They had a a room upstairs. I got come downstairs. The other two were upstairs. And I come downstairs and I was standing at the bar and they said, what are you doing? And I said, look, there's Olivia Williams who's at that table there. (laughs) And she's got two people at the table with her and there's a third chair spare. I said, (laughs) and it's taking all of my willpower not to go over sit in the chair and say, who's this arsehole? <laughs> <laughs> so my question is, is Rushmore of all the films you do, is that the film that brings the geeks to your yard, as it were? Well, fortunately, the geeks are also some, not only your good self, and you'd have been very welcome to join the table. <laughs> Any Rushmore fan is a friend, but also largely an employer. I get cast in things because of Rushmore, uh, without auditioning, which is really? the greatest gift <laughs> that you can yeah. give an actor is to give them a job without making them jump through hoops. And um, no, it's been it was definitely incredibly formative moment in my career. And you know, Wes Anderson's aesthetic has influenced an entire generation of filmmakers. Mm-hmm some of whom have offered me jobs on the back of it. So I loved making it. I knew it was extraordinary when I read it. 
and that was before I even knew about Wes's sort of visual sense um, and his extraordinary and eccentric view of filmmaking and character and life. So, um, yes, no, that was the right answer. There are a couple of movies which, if you'd said, I would have recategorized you in, <laughs> in life. But I'm very glad you said Rushmore because it's my favourites and it always produces the most interesting uh, conversations. Yeah, you are in that sense the mopole that everybody dances around because you are you are the straight you are the straight person to everybody yeah. else. and everybody else is so wacky. I mean, Jason Schwartzman is so great in that. They're so off the wall and you have to sort of just hold it all together with this still, you know, you are you are the ordinary person who's wandered into Wes Anderson's world. Yeah. Yeah, it's playing, you know, and playing for truth. And and um, I'm glad to see now that he's found his muses uh, in women as well who can be eccentric. And um, but but in in the early days, uh, the the men had all the eccentricity mm. and the women just. Uh, did tend to be um, the, the sort of objects of adoration or um, or sort of enigmas, long distant enigmas. But um, no, he's he uh, he writes so beautifully and shoots so beautifully. But it, yeah, to to stand and not laugh when um, Bill Murray went into his carrot routine um, <laughs> was almost uh, an, an impossible task. Um, yeah. I did realise that I just had to sort of stand still and do nothing while these other crazy uh, sort of uh, atoms danced around me. Yeah. And it's true of life as well. Doing nothing is sometimes the hardest thing to do. Yes, <laughs> indeed. Olivia, this has been an absolute delight. Oh, I've loved this kind of two-stage interview. Um, Started off with Kayla and then like <laughs> segue yeah, into yeah, also, I talk too much, so you'd ne- you would never have got a word from uh, Kayla because I talk too much. So it's good that you got her to yourself yeah. uh, at the beginning, I'm sure. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Vera Veenken, Senior Brand Manager for Riot Games. Hello, Vera. Hello, Jen. Nice to meet you and thanks for inviting me. Nice to meet you too. Can you tell me a little bit, first and foremost, about Riot Games? Riot Games is a game developer and we've been founded in 2006. We have uh, founded a couple of games. The two or three most common games probably are League of Legends, Valorant, and Wild Rift. So we have PC games, but also games on console and also on mobile phone. And I think the very special thing with the games that we do is they're all team-based. So you play in teams with your friends or with just strangers that you met on the internet. And then you're playing, mostly playing in five versus five teams. Do you think of it almost as like a sort of social media in itself now? To be honest, like during pandemic, my main reason to game and the main channel to stay connected with my friends and family was actually through gaming. I think it was really beneficial for me to have this ecosystem um, because I could just meet them online. We could just have some some fun and time together and game but also talk about all the different like daily stuff that we're experiencing while being in the game so yeah I actually think it's kind of like social media. One of the things that that, you know people will have heard talked about more and more commonly latterly is the rise of esports. Can you tell me a little bit about what esports actually are? I think most people, when we're talking about esport, and when especially like politicians and the government is talking about esports, usually they're talking about you know taking traditional games and turning them into esports like uh, football and then playing FIFA or the Formula One and then driving these cars online against each other in a race. Mm. But esports is so much more than taking these traditional sports online especially when we're looking at the games that we are operating within Riot Games, 
They are not coming from any traditional sports background. They are games that are highly competitive. As I said, they are played in teams mostly of five people, uh, people from all backgrounds, women, men, from across the whole region. Uh, when we're talking about our region, we're always talking about EMEA. And EMEA is the region of Europe, MENA, Turkey, and Russia combined, which is our competitive region where we're competing all together. And these teams playing against each other makes it so competitive because obviously I want to be the best. I want to improve in this game and I want to maybe even become a pro player. And when we're talking about esports, we're also talking about these pro players who are the top 0.1% of gamers in this world, the top 1% who is performing the best. And they are often supported by esports organizations it's similar like in football where you have the football club these esports organizations are paying these players a salary they are being contracted wow. and they're being supported and that's what's really important to us we want these this professional ecosystem to be there in order for men and also women to be supported and proceed their career ultimately so in my mind Esports was basically what, you know, you said people's sort of common misconception of esports is. So, like, in my mind, there was sort of a physical element, sort of a physical participation element even to esports. So I guess I was thinking of it. Do you remember the Wii Fit? Yes, yes. So (laughs) I think I was thinking that esports was a bit like that, right? But what you're saying is, so say, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like a common type of video game. So like you could basically like play Zelda or something. You'd play those games for cash. That's what a professional gamer does. Yeah, so it's mostly within the games that are competitive and that have a competitive structure. So for example, just taking one of our games, Valorant, it's a first person shooter uh, game. And you have these rankings in game that allow you to show to your friends, but also know yourself, how good am I at this game? And where do I need to improve? I can learn how to improve. And how esports is looking like usually either it's it's online or it's, it's an offline event. And when you're looking at these offline events, they're just, they're 10 tables. And each of these tables have a PC, a keyboard and a mouse and a headset. And we have five versus five players playing against each others, um, just sitting on this desk, which is absolutely, I think, incredibly weird for people not coming, (laughs) not coming from the esports and gaming industry and looking at this and like, why do people watch this? But it's incredibly awesome how the esports whole ecosystem and industry developed and how esports is being consumed is mostly via these streaming platforms such as uh, Twitch or YouTube where the players are playing online and these games are being broadcasted just very similar to, to football where these games are just being broadcasted. And I think over the past years, Riot Games has made an incredibly great job in creating so much entertainment around it so that it becomes more and more mainstream, creating these music acts around it, doing fashion collaborations. And this is really bringing it into the core society, not just within these niche group of, of gamers. We call it sport, but there's not actually yes. a sort of physical element to it so is that cheating i would say the physical part is mostly the eye and hand coordination and the reaction speed that's why also esports players they're incredibly young like i just heard of a player being signed in the u.s who is 15 being signed as a pro player going to play in like one of the most known esports organizations on the big stages it's it's incredible i when i was 15 i was <laughs> definitely not earning any money i was i was chilling with my friends and on the playground and drinking some iced tea <laughs> and that's that's absolutely incredible so the whole like stri- strategy that's going on in the game is basically the sport that's happening it's Maybe you can compare it also to chess 
where you have to be very strategic with what is your next move. And that's the same. That's basically the same within within esports. As you've said, there's a degree of professionalism within gaming now. So people sign to, yeah, as you say, almost like football clubs or whatever, and, and they get paid by them. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about women and female participation in gaming, because, I mean, I grew up with two older brothers, so I we would occasionally play a bit of FIFA or NBA Jam or various other things when I was growing up. But it's something that I definitely stopped doing and my brother still plays playstation all the time but like uh, it's something that i stopped doing and he continued doing so there is women are kind of or certainly of my generation not necessarily really encouraged to play video games in the same way that boys are would you say that's still the case or is that something that's changing i think from what i am observing within the society and also within our community the amount of women playing our games mm-hmm. um, and the amount of women who are interested in esports career is absolutely rising it just keeps rising for example 72 percent of female esports fans believe that women are not represented well in the esports space that's just a problem we we have a large uh, a huge portion of our core gamers who are women, but on the other hand side, when we're looking into esports, when we're looking into like these big stages where the pro players are competing and the teams that are being signed, we rarely see women really being signed. Although esports, and that's really important, esports is different to traditional sport. There's no need for gender-specific tournaments in theory because there's just no physical difference Mm. um, that would be a challenge for women to participate and compete among men. It's just an old stereotype and and an old structure that we need to break. And this this is the case why we also created the program called Game Changers. So can you tell me a little bit about Game Changers? Because as you say, it's not strictly speaking necessary to have female specific tournaments but game changers is a female specific tournament right yes that's correct we founded game changers in 2021 just one year after we launched our game valorant and game changers is an esports program targeted towards women which is supporting women in in esports who are playing valorant and The Game Changers program is supplementing the competitive season uh, by creating new opportunities and exposure for these women. And we saw the need of creating um, a separate tournament that is only there for women because we saw that women are just lacking of getting the visibility and getting the support from organizations. And we thought, okay, what do we have to do in order for esports organizations to support and sign these women? Of course, we have to create a price pool for them because obviously money is always very attractive. And if they can earn money, they can also pay their players. These are the things why we created Game Changers, because we want women to get the support system they need in order to become professional players. And we want them to have a stage to get this visibility and be picked up, be signed by these esports organizations and proceed their career. But also, ultimately, we don't see Game Changers as a women league. For us, it's a tournament um, that gives this visibility, but ultimately, our really long-term goal is to have one diverse esports ecosystem. So we really hope that in the future, we don't need Game Changers anymore because esports is just going to be very diverse and everybody's competing together on one stage can i ask you because this is sort of quite a big thing that's come up in in sport in general at the moment how does the prize pot for example compare to like general prize pots is it sort of like about equal or comparing it with our regional leagues when we're talking about esports it's very similar to football where you have the like national regional leagues and then you have the pan national in europe or emea we have a uh, esports league in this region and when we compare game changers to the regional leagues it's absolutely comparable in price pool and that's really important for us because when we look at the skill set it's also very comparable 
And we also want to give these women teams the possibility to compete in all other tournaments as well. On the other hand side, we also don't want them to rely solely on the women tournaments, right? We want them to take their chance to compete in the open ecosystem. And Game Changers is just a stepping stone. It's a stepping stone to get into esports for women. It is not a replacement for the overall ecosystem. Do you think that helps to draw women in? Do you think it's less intimidating perhaps for women to to get involved in in an all-female tournament than it is to just dive straight into the the general scene? From what I see within the community and what we get from feedback from our women players, because they are playing in the game, they're playing among men. And it was really important for them to have this safe space where they can be themselves and know that this is a stage only for women. We actually initially planned to have tournaments under Game Changers that are for mixed teams uh, that would include men. And we actually got the feedback when we we made the announcement for that tournament. We got very, very strong feedback of the female community that this is not something they are ready to have, they are prepared to have. This is definitely something they also want to have in the future. But for them, it's really important to have the safe space first. And when we're looking at the numbers, we do see it's working. We had 50 teams signing up in September 2021. And right now uh, for the tournament that's currently running, uh, we already have 91 teams signing up, which is absolutely amazing. And uh, again, 40% of the players of the women are new to esports, new to the tournament. That's a huge success for us. So when is the Game Changers tournament and how can women get involved in esports? If you are already a player, if you are already very on a high skill within the game, then you should definitely get into the community, get connected on social media. And social media in this case often means like uh, Twitter or also Discord. And Discord is one of the most used gaming social media platforms it's basically like an always online phone call that i can make and group call with all my friends and gamers these are the platforms where women are getting connected and finding themselves to create teams and i think this is the first step i create a team practice in the team and then sign up for game changers We are currently running our second Game Changers tournament this year. We're going to have a third one in EMEA later this year. And then we are going to have also the Global Championship, which we are very excited to have for the very, very first time where all regions worldwide globally are coming together and competing for the ultimately best women team to come out. If you're not a pro player, if you're just interested in esports, just watch it and I think one thing that really helped me because I was a gamer all my life and I stopped playing at one time and my career started within automotive and then I went into mobility and travel I didn't stop my career within gaming I'm a a designer and I started as a brand strategist and then ultimately at one point I thought like why I'm not going into the gaming industry because I love gaming and I did it all my life but for some reason, I didn't connect it with the business world because also I, maybe I wasn't even aware of the possibilities that I have. So I want to encourage people to also just step into gaming whenever they are ready and whenever they see the opportunity opening up. There is no one path that you have to follow to get into gaming. There are always side paths and side quests that you have to go and have to take in order uh, to get to your goal. So Just stay connected, have your eyes open for any opportunities and then get them. And it's just, it's not just being a player. You can be a caster, you can be on stream and talking about the gameplay that you're seeing. You can be a talent manager. There are just so many different opportunities within gaming and esports. And we really appreciate every talent who's joining us on the journey. Where can we find out more about Game Changers? You can find out more about Game Changers on our website, playveteran.com. 
Also on our Twitter, which is Valorant Champions Tour, it's called the VCT, and also on other platforms like Facebook or Instagram. Vera, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jen, for having me. It was really lovely talking to you. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, it's pretty cold today, so why am I just sat in my sports bra? Well, Mick, it's a good question. <laughs> it's a good question and one that I don't really have the answers for, but but we'll get into it. This week, we watched 2002's Bend It Like Beckham, written, directed and produced by Gurinda Chadha. A sort of, I don't know, coming of age, culture clash, think East is East of the Ladette era, if you will. Mm-hmm. Chadda apparently came up with the idea for Bend It Like Beckham after watching England and Arsenal legend Ian Wright run onto a pitch with a Union Jack, inspiring her to explore the concept of Britishness in a film. Now, I want to say up the top, there is a lot of hype about the significance of this film, and I was very excited to watch it again. More on that in a bit, but first of all, <laughs> let's do the plot, shall we? Jess Minder, Jess Bamra, played by Parminda Nagra, is a football-loving, second-generation British-Indian Sikh who lives in Hounslow with her sister Pinky, her mum and her dad. Jess spends her days with her best friend Tony and a bunch of lads, lads, lads playing football <laughs> in they the park. Lads, lads, lads. They are lads, lads, lads. Her parents despair of her tomboyish ways, particularly since Pinky is due to be married and Jess's behaviour has a bearing on how the family might be seen within the community. Jess meets Jules, played by Kira Knightley, in the park, who invites her to try out at her women's football team, the Hounslow Harriers, which I think is a slightly confusing name because Harriers is more commonly associated with athletics. Running, yeah. Yeah, and I would have gone for Hamlet, personally, but whatever, you know, as in <laughs> as in Dulwich Hamlet. Jess is apparently great at football, and she loves David Beckham, who she aspires to bend the ball like, as the title implies, referring to how old Golden Balls, do you remember when he was called that? Yeah. Yeah, was a dab hand, a, a dab foot, perhaps, with a I set think definitely piece. a dab foot. So back in the day, you might remember he was he was pretty good at a free kick. Shame about the rest of it, but whatever. I mean, he was quite good, but he was not Pele. Or even, though it pains me to say it, Ronaldo. And I mean not the best Ronaldo. Anyway, she starts <laughs> playing for the team in secret to avoid incurring the wrath of her parents. She meets coach Joe, played by an extraordinarily gay-energied Jonathan Rhys Mayers. Do you think he's quite camp? I mean... The disco scene, the disco, nightclub, club. I've just turned into my dad. I don't know what's wrong with me. <laughs> anyway, Jules has got the hots for him. Jess has got the hots for him. Teammate Shaznay Lewis is too busy having tits, waving a tampon around and being Shaznay Lewis to care about him. But he is hot stuff in the way that only a man with frosted tips could be in the year 2002. There's problems with the whole of the Joe situation, but yes. I'm sure we'll get to that later. Well, I mean... I, not just his hair. <laughs> I'm not keeping my powder dry here, but this is where the film starts to get a little bit annoying from my perspective. Jess's parents find out they're not happy and they ban her from playing. Her coach makes wildly inappropriate familial comparisons and urges her to sack them off in a bid to be scouted by an American who's coming to watch the all-important final... God, that was a long sentence. But it's Pinky's <laughs> wedding! What will she do? So there are some fantastic performances in the film, namely Agreed. by Juliet Stevenson as Jules's similarly despairing mum. She's fucking great in it. And Archie Punjabi as Pinky. But the leads don't really do it for me. However, it did catapult them to fame with Parminda Nagra landing a long-running part in the US hospital drama ER, Jonathan Reese mayers in The Tudors and Kira Knightley going on to become, obviously, Kira Knightley. Uh-huh. It did very well. And watching it back, I can kind of see why for all its failings. And there are quite a few, in my opinion. And again, yes. we'll, we'll talk about that. It captures the zeitgeist of 2002 perfectly. And I felt crazy nostalgic watching it. And I imagine it also felt like quite a big deal for young British Asian women. Although obviously mm-hmm. that is something that I personally know rather less about. 
It came at a moment when women's football was on the come up, in the aftermath of the 90s ladette, and I think it does a lot of things right by women, but again, we'll come back to that. <laughs> we can't have it all, Jen. We can't, we can't. have it all. <laughs> you, li- you really can't. Certainly, it struck a chord with audiences becoming the highest grossing football film in the US and making a total of $76.6 million worldwide, and that is from a budget of $6 million. So, Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah, much bigger than I remember it being. Really surprised to read that. I read somewhere, but I couldn't find it again to corroborate this fact, in inverted commas. But apparently it was the biggest British film at the time, like before Slumdog Millionaire. Oh, right. Okay. Well, I can kind of see why. Yeah, if it did really well in America. And mm. obviously in America, women do play football. Football is they considered do. a women's yeah. sport. So it, yeah. it had a market there, maybe. But yeah, I, and also it was attached to Beckham's name. So I guess yeah. that probably drew in quite a lot of people. <laughs> I've, got, I've got something on that as well. But um, fun facts. <laughs> Parminder Nagra was not a football player when she was cast in this film. I think it's fair to say there's a little bit of jiggery-pokery with the camera trickery in it. You don't often see her legs and her face at the same time when she's playing football. (laughs) In fairness, Jen, I never let anyone see my legs and my face at the same time either. Me either. It's just a decision. She, (laughs) She says she's not touched a football since the film i watched this film around the time it was released and i have not watched it since so mick what what about you yeah i saw it when it came out or around that time i don't think i went to cinema so it'll have been like the eight years later when it arrived on television or something yeah no me too yeah (laughs) it's it's a real interesting mix of getting loads of stuff right and stuff that really rankled including the very problematic relationship with joe but can i read you just my list of little bullet points I've made just yeah. just before we start. I'm Irish. The club scene, the hanky top. The pedal pushers, the acting, feminist, question mark, sports bras, the decorators, <laughs> Budget Beckham. <laughs> That's actually David Beckham, you know, it isn't Budget no. Beckham. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, I've, it's not Budget I, Beckham. I genuinely, genuinely thought that was a really shit, like... <laughs> look-alike no it's OMG. him and Bosch Spice uh OMG. yeah mm. yeah I have a question before we mm. tackle all of those bullet points which I've yeah. got to say are relevant um <laughs> <laughs> to your enjoyment or not of the film <laughs> Jen for someone who isn't a footballer although I did used to play at school and a bit at university I think that when films or tv programs are about football they never kind of capture the dynamism of football it doesn't feel like watching an actual match or certainly not watching an exciting match and I think Bend It Like Beckham gets the football really right I think it's entertaining Mm. and I like that they do a lot of the kind of warm-up scenes because obviously that's easier to recreate and be sort of valid and look realistic Mm. I don't know I don't know because I think how do I do this without just spaffing everything immediately? This film has not aged well, has it? Let's, let's, it's got issues, Jen. It's got issues. It's, and, I, and I think it's hard to watch and sort of appreciate a lot of it in a serious way because of some of the issues that it has. So I don't know. I, I don't know how I felt about the football. It wasn't like watching Gregory's Girl where it... it <laughs> It doesn't come across great, but it's not, you know, it's not like sitting down to watch, you know, Manchester City. But then what is, you know, what is? <laughs> so so that's an unfair thing to say. I enjoyed the camaraderie of the teammates. I thought mm, they captured yeah. that very nicely. I enjoyed the celebrations and things like that. I thought that they, they didn't look like people pretending to play football. They They did look like people playing football. Yes, I guess that's kind of what I meant. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's very hard to take this film seriously as soon as Kira Knightley opens her mouth and she's supposed mm. to be working class. Mm. And she just cannot do that accent. She's too posh. 
she can't do it. She keeps just going back into being aristocracy. And yeah. it's, it's really quite jarring, which is a shame because I don't think she's terrible in it. She got no. absolutely slated at the time, but I don't think she's terrible in it. I think she plays a convincing character. I like Jules. You can see where she's coming from. And she has that camaraderie of the team. But yeah, her accent, man, I just couldn't. When she does the little rant in the car about going to America and she's like, and so I don't even, because it'll be a sponsorship. I don't even need you to pay. They will just send me there. Oh, <laughs> apples and pears. What is going on, mate? No. It doesn't help that Juliet Stevenson, and I'm really sorry I've not written down the name of her dad, who is, he does a, a good job in it. I like him in it, but he's mm. a bit, eh, he's not that important, is he? I think that it doesn't help that obviously they both do the accent very well. Very well. <laughs> yeah. So my main takeaway point, about Kira Knightley, apart from like the gurning that she does in all things, is the hairband. I fucking loved the little zigzaggy hairband. I thought that was a lovely touch because that is what footballers, what male footballers of that generation wore uh, Beckham commonly. Beckham himself, in fact, yeah. Exactly. That's the main thing I enjoyed about the character of Jules was her hairband. Make of that what you will. <laughs> so, Jen, talk me through what didn't work for you. Oh, I don't think the acting is great in a lot of it, to be honest. They do weird, like, and I think it's of its time, they do weird kind of, like, fade to a still in the middle of a film, and you're just like, mm. just just end the scene. <laughs> it's really weird. Maybe that was a budgetary thing, I don't know. I guess, like, if it only had six million, fair enough. We can't finish this scene, just fade out. <laughs> yeah, just fade out. So, I, I don't, I, some of the acting I thought was a bit squiffy. I didn't think Kira Knightley was great i didn't think palminda nagra was brilliant i thought she was like all right but i didn't think she was like fantastic i thought archie punjabi was great and Mm. i thought that juliet stevenson was great but juliet stevenson her character quite problematic now incredibly homophobic very homophobic very homophobic although I thought, like, the idea that they sort of expect all of the women to be gay is probably quite... Well, not probably. It is very realistic for that to be the assumption that people Mm -hmm. draw because it is still very commonly the assumption that people make about female footballers. I think that the women are quite objectified in it. Fuck yes! Oh, my God. Like, you mentioned the sports bra shots and there's loads of them and, like, the celebrations, right? Keira Knightley basically doesn't have a T-shirt on for most of the film. But also, like, weird changing room shots where we just, like, hone in on a a pink bra and it's like, okay, you're clearly thinking some blokes might, het blokes might come in given the title and what? That's just for there for them. I was like, fuck off. It under undermines what you're saying about women being athletes. I mentioned it earlier, the decorators, and I, I texted you about it yesterday. It's not just that Shazne Lewis says, brandishing a tampon at Jess. It's not just that she says, I've got the decorators. She says, I've got some decorators in, which isn't, <laughs> like, which isn't even the expression. And I was just like, oh, I cringed harder than I've cringed in a while. And I was... Very surprised that this was written by a woman because I think that a lot of it comes across as like sort of a 21-year-old man has written it pretending to be a woman. But the wider point I have about that is about whether or not this is a feminist film and I have an opinion on that. But Mickey, I would like to know what is your view? Of its time... I think it was really important for women. And I think, and you made the point earlier, probably for British Indian girls being able to see themselves. Like Joe comes out with some absolute horrible lines, uh, including, oh, I didn't know Indian girls were into football. I mean, why are you racialising that? It's weird. But Mm. it was absolutely what, what women and girls were facing at that time. And I'm sure loads of girls looked at it and thought I could maybe be that. And it was really important. So... Yes, I think in that way, it potentially empowered a lot of girls and maybe women. And it has been like female football players now who play for England and stuff have said that it was really influential for them and it really, you know, made them want to get into Mm. the game and stuff. So I think it was important and therefore has feminist credentials. But that whole thing about the male gaze, the incredibly problematic 
relationship in inverted commas between Joe, who is older than the girls he's coaching and their coach. Mm. And yet we're supposed to be, I mean, it didn't need a romance when she says no, no, that should have just been that. But there's like a weird foot massage, a weird telling off, a weird conflation of when she gets called a racist slur on the pitch and him going, of course I understand I'm Irish. And I, I kind of get oh that, God. but it's so, it's so belittling to what's yeah. just happened to her. And he's, he's, pretty creepy the club scene not only oh. is he giving off a lot of camp energy but actually <laughs> when you look at it he's an uh, he's a grown man dancing with a load of teenagers in handkerchief hem tops yeah it's awful it's i think he's very problematic as a character but clearly wasn't seen as such 20 years ago i mean i hadn't really thought about a lot of that to be honest but the thing about the the irish thing so i think it comes across as quite male gazy i think it is written with a white male audience in mind because i think the scene about where the where she's racially abused on the pitch they don't do anything with that that's like almost like a throwaway like an aside and then he says to her and i thought about this i talked to my mum about it today because obviously you know back in the day you know irish people were massively um oh yeah totally massively discriminated against but it's i thought now for him to be like, of course I understand I'm Irish, I, you'd be crucified for that now. Like, absolutely mm-hmm. crucified. And perhaps maybe in 2002, that kind of lingering discrimination against Irish people, maybe it felt like more of a thing then than maybe it does now. Maybe it does still exist now and I just don't see it because I'm not Irish. I don't know. But I, I think that, that you would not write that in a film now. You wouldn't. And you'd certainly explore what's happened to her on the pitch more than they do. Yeah, it's almost used just as a way of bringing those two closer when they could have done much more with it. And I think you're right. If it was any sort of semblance of that, which was in a film about this made today, they would do more with it. Totally. Yeah, but I actually think... I'm not sure I agree with you that it's made for a white male audience because I think the indian wedding scene is gorgeous it's glorious it's really celebratory and i don't think that is shown on western screens as much as it should be given how much a part of our culture that is you know and how much it it is part of british culture and god indian weddings look like huge fun it looks amazing Mm, maybe i want to tone that down a bit i don't think it is made for a white male audience but i think they have certainly thought about what would appeal to a white male exactly audience that. and it's I don't like, think they needed to yes. yeah no, I exactly totally agree with you but actually one of the things you've said there was another thing that I loved about it knowing like that little pocket of West London not terribly well but but a little bit having sort of worked in that area for quite a few years I, I think it does it like beautifully with all the planes coming from Heathrow and like mm-hmm. the really kind of like suburban sort of aspect of it. I think it does that really, really nicely. And and there's a shot, as you say, of the Indian wedding where they're all there in the garden and it comes up and the camera pans out and you see all these other little little gardens with like, you know, white people having barbecues or whatever. And it's yeah, just yeah. like, I think they do that really, really well. And I really, I really enjoyed that about it. Just to come back to the thing about whether the film is feminist, the bit where it loses it for me is the unnecessary romance with Joe mm. and it becomes about, like, two birds having an argument over a guy. Uh-huh. And also a lot of it is to do with... And again, like, this is probably, you know, culturally appropriate or whatever, but, like, it, it's also about, you know, the dads. And so it's all... It becomes really about sort of pleasing men, I agree like 90%. I think it's the dad and the mum. I think it's it's Jessie's mum and dad. And actually mm. her mum has a lot of sway most of the film. And then you're right, her dad gets to make the final call. Mm. And the other bit that killed it for me as a film, like almost killed the film for me, was like once they've accepted that she's playing football and she'll go to America and her dad does a a gorgeous speech. And it's, you know, when he's talking about Mm. how he gave up cricket and who suffered, that's really powerful. And I think it's an excellent bit of of cinema that, but then all of a sudden they're probably going to be fine with her going out with Joe as well. And it's like, what? They're not just, yeah, like everything's fine now. Do whatever you like. I just don't think they've set that up in the rest of the film like, that we could ever believe that. Yeah. And they're like, I'm, I'm not your coach anymore. It's really creepy. <sighs> I, think, I think you're right. It's, it's not nice. It's not nice at all. 
The only reason I haven't vomited whilst talking about that is because actually when they filmed it, she was 26 and he was 24. So very different in age to actually the characters they're playing. Yeah. I thought she, I didn't actually look it up, but I, I meant to look it up because I thought she, I think she's quite a bit older than Kira Knightley. So I did. Yeah, because Kira Knightley was only 17 when. Yeah. And also she had 20 weeks intense training, football training. And one of the England managers or the England coaches, male mm. coaches, said that he thought she was such a natural she could have gone professional, Kira Knightley. Wow. So, you know, Kira, if that acting career doesn't pay off. <laughs> that, um, sorry, that, that, that was something actually that I wanted to... So I thought they did, they did it quite well, the stuff about the American, you know, the American scout and whatever, because obviously the game was way more developed in the States mm. than the women's game in the UK, in England, has come a really, really long way since this film. And it is, I think, fully professional in the top tier of women's football and still semi-professional. And like we've, got, uh, we've got the Euros, haven't we? And Wembley, the final's already sold out. It it has, but I've got other thoughts on that. Like the fact oh, okay. that the other venues... Why is the Academy Stadium, your Manchester venue, has got a capacity of 4,700? Why do the organisers of the Euros not have greater ambitions for ticket sales we've stumbled into a jenny off the blocks now haven't we? sorry i'll <laughs> no, stop no, wanking on about that it's interesting but the thing that he said when he said oh you know we might i'm going to stay with the women's team and we're going to go professional next year it was 16 years before the women's leagues went professional now i think chelsea and man city went professional a bit ahead of that but it's still like a good 10 years before there were any professional teams in england so that was silly. Wildly my... optimistic, <laughs> but no surprise to me that Joe chats shit. Um, like, <laughs> seems like he chats shit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, and then he's playing cricket with her dad. Oh, I hated oh, him. Yeah, I hated him too. Right, well, then Mick, I'm going to ask you the question, is this film rated or dated? Now then, as ever, we have chosen a binary title for this section. And mm. It's very rarely a binary answer. I am actually going to say... Lots of this I find problematic, as we've discussed. But I still think it's rated. I still think, like, a young girl might watch that and it could make her think, oh, maybe I can play football, that's great, I could do that. And particularly a young British Indian girl. I think it is unbelievably dated. <laughs> I, think it is, I think it is really dated in so many ways. But... Did I have a lovely time watching it? Yes, absolutely. Like there's 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 a lot that's wrong with it, but I I really enjoyed it. I have to say, excellent. Michaela Noonan, I believe it's your turn next week. What are we watching? It's an excellent question, Jen, and one that I intend to find an answer for when we get off this um, recording. Because I'm sorry, listeners, I have failed to find a film yet. My apologies. I'll make sure I have found one soon so it can go in the mail out and we'll put it on Twitter if you want to watch along. Lovely stuff. I mean, you know, bank holidays, what are you going to do, eh? (laughs) Exactly that, Jen. Standard Issue for all women.